And let's be clear, we exist only as a Great Commission people. We exist in order that sinners will hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and believe and be saved from all the nations. The marching orders of the Church of Jesus Christ were to go into all the world and preach the gospel because the gospel has the power unto salvation. This is what it means to follow Christ. A call to live, a call to die, a call to spend your life for Jesus here and around the world until he returns. Welcome to Amazon to the Himalayas podcast. I'm your host, Paul Aiken. This season of the podcast, we've been focusing on missions in challenging and unique places. And today we're going to be talking with a couple, Nate and Jenny, who are serving in the bush of Central Africa. Nate grew up in Michigan. Jenny grew up in Australia. They were both saved in their early 20s and felt the Lord's call on their life to be engaged in mission work. That led them both to Africa, where they actually met each other. Then they were married in 2007, attended Southern Seminary 2008 to 2012. And then in 2012, they went with their two children back to the continent of Africa. They've now been in Africa for more than a decade, working with a largely rural Muslim people group. They've had three more kids since they've been there, and so they now have a total of five. And I've been looking forward to this conversation. Nate and Jenny, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks very much. Yeah, why don't we start with where are you? Give us an overview of your context the people that you're working with, the environment, the landscape, the culture. Tell us a little bit about that. So we live in subtropical Africa. So it's as far as the environment goes, it's either really wet or really dry and nothing in between. We live up on a on a plateau about a thousand meters elevation. So it's a little more temperate than some other places across the continent. The people that we work with are subsistence farmers. You can picture Old Testament kind of farming techniques. And that's what they have around us, except maybe a step backward from that in some ways. (laughs) No animals to help out in the fields or anything like that. So everything's done by hand. And what they grow in the year is what they eat for the year. Uh, There's really not much margin for error. It's a very poor climate, very low literacy rate, low education, really quite a short life expectancy mostly due to a lot of infant mortality, uh, other things as well, like HIV. That's really rampant. I think about 30 to 30 to 35% of the population supposedly has HIV. The culture of the people that we work in, it's a folk Islam culture. And so very heavily into witchcraft, although they claim a strong identity of, of Islam as well. It's, a, it's an essential part of who they say they are. But really what that means is something different from your orthodox islam it's it's very it's very deep into into the witchcraft side of it hmm. thanks for providing kind of an overview of that is there are there any interesting or unique facts about your location your area that people maybe are not familiar with or may not know if you've heard of david livingstone like he kind of explored across this area actually the people that we work among were some of his earlier guides as he worked his way up to, into africa looking for a trade route across the continent Interesting things about the culture that we work with, it's unique in that it's matrilineal, which is unusual. So what it means is the authority for a family is not the the father, it's actually the mother's oldest brother. Uh, So it really can wreak some havoc on family dynamics when you start looking at it family from a biblical perspective. That's something that I haven't seen a whole lot of places around the world that is the case here. 
I'm kind of curious, maybe there'll be more that could be shared about that later. I kind of want to dive into more questions there, but I'm going to resist the urge at this <laughs> point to make sure that we keep going forward. I mentioned in the bio that you're from Michigan. Jenny is from Australia, but now you're both in Africa. I think it'd be helpful for our listeners to kind of hear some of the backstory, maybe just briefly from both of you, just kind of sharing, how do you get from Michigan? How do you get from Australia to the continent of Africa? Well, I was at university in Michigan when I actually went to Australia to study uh, for a time, and that's when I was saved. And so I went back to the States and started trying to find a a healthy church to be a part of. And as just a part of that process, I actually was really by all of the churches that there were in the States, all the options that I had to choose from. And I started to feel a burden, even in those early days as a believer, for the places in the world where they didn't have access to the truth or people who could tell them the truth or a Bible in their language. And so from those early days as a believer, the Lord started calling me to take the gospel out. Fast forward a couple of years, I actually ended up in a Southern Baptist church in Texas because I was drawn to the solid preaching. I started looking at how I could go out, and the pastor of that church directed me to the IMB and contacted the IMB, the International Mission Board, and started looking through their job lists for journeyman, a two-year assignment. And honestly, I chose Mozambique as a journeyman because I thought that is a place I would not want to raise a family. It's too too far out there, but I can do this as a young single guy. Wow! And so I, I, I'll, I'll do that now. I'll thin my years there. So I went to Mozambique as a young single guy back in 2005. When I was saved in my 20s, the Lord changed my desire to pull the world into one where I should go to the nations to tell people about Jesus. Yeah. And just at a Bible college, I met some missionaries in Mozambique who needed someone to come and homeschool their kids. So the Lord opened that door. And so I moved to Mozambique to homeschool the kids of three different families. And that's where I met Nate in a little village in Mozambique. We're actually renting houses right next door to each other. We got to know each other over the wall. Wow. That's incredible. That's an amazing story. And yeah. And now to see that the Lord has led you back and you now are raising a family there and have been doing so now for more than a decade, I think is a testimony to his grace, but also to your faithfulness and obedience as well, which is very encouraging. I want to transition. You've talked about the location, the context where you are. You kind of shared some of your background, your story. You guys have been there for more than a decade now. And so I would just ask you, what is it about this place that makes it so special to you? It's it's obvious as you talk about it, you can hear and sense that there's a a love and a passion for where you are and what you're doing. But what is it that makes it so special to you? It's not a place that I would have chosen to come. We're here because God has called us here. And he called us here because he loves these people. And so that's part of what makes it special is that the Lord wants us here and he loves the people that are around us. And I think it's also special because we've raised our children here and it's home to them and they really love it. So those are some things that are special to me. Also, the people that we work with. I'd add to that probably two more things as well. I do enjoy the challenge of living here. It's not for everyone. But when you wake up in America, you pretty much know at the beginning of the day how your day is going to go. There might be a few things in there that you can't control. But here, there's not even a pretense of control. <laughs> uh, it's just you take what the what the day gives you oftentimes. You can drive down the road and you might get three flat tires in one trip and end up having to, to ask somebody to borrow a spare. Or the water might stop working. And so you've just got to completely change your plans based on 
what happens around you. So I do like the sort of almost kind of like what I a little bit like what I picture the frontier living would have been a couple hundred years ago, except I have solar power. (laughs) Running water. (laughs) But really, one of the greatest things about living here is the stark contrast that a genuine believer makes in this culture. One of the things about where we live is it's a culture that has never had a gospel influence. Mm. Uh, You know, there's no high regard for integrity, justice, passion. There's no mercy or humility. Like these aren't prized values in the culture. I mean, look at a matrilineal situation where your uncle is raising the kids and the father has no responsibility for his own kids. And so then you, you take somebody from that dark environment and God fills them with the Holy Spirit. And it's it's beautiful. It's really, it's such a stark contrast that it's one of the most encouraging things about being here is when we really do see a life transformed. One of our brothers came to me one day and just this big, huge grin on his face. And he said, he was obviously really happy with himself. And he said, I made my wife a coffee this morning. <laughs> like, like he had just, you know, hit it out of the ballpark because... Very um, countercultural. Yeah, very countercultural. <laughs> to serve your wife. So just that sort of transformation is one of the greatest things about being here. Jenny, you you mentioned like, maybe it's not the place so much, but we know that God has given us a mission and he's led us here because he loves these people. So I, I love that. And then obviously, Nate, you, you mentioned sort of some of the challenges, but also some of the adventure that kind of comes with living in a place like that. I asked you why you loved it, but now I, I want to transition to what are some of the challenges? You kind of, you've touched on a few of those, but maybe let's dive a little deeper what are some of the challenges that you face in ministering in a context like this? Obviously, very different from context where you both grew up. But what does it look like to do ministry in a place like this? I mean, I can start where I just left off. Is This is a culture that has never had a gospel influence for all of the history of the world. And so that comes with a lot of with a lot of baggage and heavy spiritual baggage. So integrity is not a prized trait. And so there's a willingness to profess anything. And a lot of Africa, if they think that there's a handout to be had. And so that can make it really difficult to discern motives. When somebody says they want to follow Jesus, uh, they might just be thinking, well, here's a, a foreigner who maybe I could get a job off of them. And so that has been a challenging thing with ministry over the years. It's led to a lot of kind of an ebbing and flowing of responsiveness. And honestly, church discipline has actually been one of the hallmarks of our ministry here, as we've seen people. Their knee-jerk reaction will sometimes be that cultural tendency rather than a biblical tendency because they're new to scripture. And then sometimes they'll just put their foot down and say, no, this is what I am. Like I am a womanizer, I guess, is it would be the closest thing, which is a very prized cultural thing. Like you're a man if you have multiple wives. And sometimes people will say, This is this is man's part of cultural identity. So that that has been difficult with the lack of compassion. There have been situations where somebody has a calamity strike. And then they'll just, their tendency will be to say, well, let's just wait till the foreigner comes and then see what he'll do to help you, uh, rather than actually having compassion on the person who just had their house ransacked, for example. I think those have been good teaching opportunities too, though. So with it, you're always able to open scripture. And when true believers have the word open to them, they're We've seen that they're always willing to submit and they're learning these new things. Oh, compassion. Oh, I should be doing something to help. And 
Mm. True believers are always willing to obey scripture. Yeah, those have been some really great teaching opportunities for the church. We have tried to seize them as we can. And that's the difference with genuine believers, those ones who really do shine, like I mentioned before. They're the ones who say, well, hang on, this is what I've always learned, what I've always known, but now this is what God's word says, and so I need to rethink what I've always assumed. There are challenges with ministry to women as well, who have their older brother as their authority in their lives. And the women tend to be the ones who are deeper into witchcraft as well. Out of It's the only thing they know. So it's fear for their children. They think that the witch doctor can help their family. And so it's really hard for them to break free of that. I think too, people are persecuted, not physically, but they're isolated if they become a Christian here. Their families disown them the mosque disowns them and it's the whole village really goes against a person. And so that makes ministry (laughs) challenging too, because I have a Bible study once a week and women are afraid to come to it because the mosque leaders will just follow after me and tell them that they shouldn't come to those Bible studies. What sounds like what's happening a lot is as you guys are teaching biblical truth or you're teaching the way of Jesus or the words of Jesus, that there's kind of a collision that's taking place between the words of Christ in the Bible and kind of their culture and their norms and you're able to present a pretty stark contrast. And it sounds like, you know, in the example that you talked about with the coffee for his wife, you know, there's kind of an example of, hey, this is something that's completely countercultural, but I kind of can see some of the wisdom in it once they kind of engage in it. So when you talk about opposition, do you feel like the opposition, because of the religious background, do you feel like more of the opposition comes from a religious standpoint or more from a cultural standpoint? Does that make sense? Is it more kind of, I'm going to refute your teachings with some Islamic talking points that I've kind of heard from an imam somewhere, or is it more, well, hey, in our cultural context, this is kind of the values that we have. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'd say it's both to various degrees. We get mosque leaders who will sort of go on a bit of a campaign from time to time against Christians, and they'll find any Christians they can. And they've They've actually got a list and it's the most laughable list possible because everything, all you have to do is just say context, context, context. Open up the Bible and read the whole passage, yeah, not just that one verse. Before <laughs> and after. And they'll actually say, no, no, not before and after. Just read between these fingers. <laughs> <laughs> so they do have those kinds of religious crusades from time to time. But I, we've, we find those sorts of things very easy to refute by just teaching believers to read the passage, to read the context. It's probably the cultural things that are a little more sticky and challenging from the people who are receiving the opposition, because one of the first things that they'll say is, well, if you get sick, we're not going to visit you. If you die, we're not going to bury you. We're going to leave your body in the street. And that's just a scary thing for somebody. I mean, I suppose somebody in any culture would would kind of balk a bit at that, but especially in this culture where it's a very physical you're in the dust, like you're in the dirt of the world all the time. It's, I've only ever heard one sister, it was just food for my soul, which she said, you know what, when I die, you cut me up in pieces and do whatever you want with the body. I'm going to go be with Jesus. Like that was just like, it, wow. like, it's that kind of thing that just gives you fuel to keep going. But for most people, it's a very scary thing. It is. To yeah, not sure. be buried because of their beliefs. Yeah. yeah sure. So more, it's more that sort of social pressure that drives the fear. And in a in a communal society where you may not get enough food for the year to have your family say, we're not going to look after you if you struggle, that's a scary thing. You can understand a right hesitation in a counting of the cost. Yeah. The cost of discipleship, Jesus's words about father and mother, son and daughter, all of these things take on more meaning, certainly in a context mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, definitely a reminder to us and those listening to be 
praying for our brothers and sisters around the world who are regularly faced with this kind of opposition from family members. I would say the ones that we've seen who have faced this kind of opposition and have stood firm through it, they are the most faithful. They just get stronger and stronger. And the Lord just has uses them, continues mm. to use them mightily. The Great Commission is a call to go. And a call to go is a call to prepare. Whether you're called to advance the gospel in your local church or on mission fields around the world, Southern Seminary is committed to preparing you for a lifetime of faithful ministry. Designed with flexibility and personalization in mind, the Master of Divinity in Great Commission Studies allows pastors, missionaries, and ministry leaders to prepare for their own unique call to ministry. It's designed to equip students with the biblical foundation and the practical training needed to present the gospel clearly in cross-cultural missional settings. To learn more about the Master of Divinity in Great Commission Studies, go to sbts.edu bgs or go to the episode notes for this podcast and click the link to the Billy Graham School of Southern Seminary. There, you'll learn how listeners to this podcast can save $40 when applying for classes. That web address again is sbts.edu slash bgs. Jenny, I'd love to hear you talk. We talked about your family. We talked about, you know, you guys obviously being married, but now five kids. Can you talk a little bit about what life looks like for you, for the family? I have more of a routine than Nate since I homeschool the kids and I make boundaries to try and keep a consistent routine for the kids sake and for for my sake really life does happen and things change but mostly I'm homeschooling the kids during the day and I have one bible study a week that I do with women in the village but that's mostly my routine and then I'm making everything from scratch so a lot of it is feeding my family too (laughs) and the kids range age range goes from like where to where roughly from 14 to 4 so we have four really close together 14 12, 10, and nine. And then we had a four-year-old four years later. <laughs> okay. Definitely yeah. keeps you busy that and all the other things you mentioned. So certainly. Yeah. That's my main ministry is to my kids. And I'm really yeah. thankful. I love it. That's great. Can you guys talk at all about what ministry looks like together in any sense or how it looks different? Obviously you mentioned some of the differences there, but Nate, can you kind of weigh in on kind of how your schedule maybe is not, <laughs> maybe not as consistent and maybe you like that. Maybe you don't like that, but yeah, just kind of <laughs> what some of those different dynamics look like. Well, I will say, too, that our ministry has looked different in the different seasons that we've been in. So when we first got here, we had young kids. Our oldest was three. And so we did a lot of ministry together back then. We would go out together. We'd visit people together. We'd do Bible studies together. We tried to do everything that we could together, uh, always knowing that the season was coming when we wouldn't have that luxury. And even when the kids were in their earlier years, the oldest ones, we you know, when Like Jenny could do schooling just four days a week. And so we would still be able to do more as a family than what than what we do now. But we also recognize that there's another season eventually when the kids leave the home and we'll be able to be back to doing ministry together again. Uh, And so we, we try to make sure that we are cherishing the time that we do have with the kids. It's a brief season in each of their lives. And so we don't want to sort of brush that aside so that we can get out the door and serve others while while neglecting the family either. Sure. So I really appreciate how much Jenny invests in our children. That's a beautiful thing to watch. As far as my ministry outside the home as well, yeah, it's not as structured. It varies a lot from, from week to week. I do have some daily things. Um, I have a discipleship, a group of guys that I study with uh, most days of the week. 
actually not all of them are literate. And so it's become a, a nice way to study scripture with guys that can't read is to kind of just read it as a group and talk through verse by verse what it means. And so that's a very more routine thing for me that I do almost daily. Uh, we do have different churches. Some churches meet on Fridays because that's the cultural sort of day of rest. And then others meet on Sunday because they chose that way. So uh, we have church twice a week. And then other than that, large swaths of my time are taken up with immigration stuff and making sure that we're legally able to stay in the country. Opportunities to teach come up sometimes where we'll focus on a certain village for a stretch of time or a, a certain area where we'll go out every week once or twice to the, to the same place and, and try to share the gospel or have Bible studies, evangelistic Bible studies in, in those places. And then sometimes I get opportunities to teach to a more literate crowd as well. Uh, just last week, I had a chance to teach in a Bible school that's in our provincial capital. And so I was able to teach in there for a couple mm. of days as well. Mm. So floods come and then we're organizing disaster relief and all of that's these are all teaching opportunities for the for the churches as well. And so I try that in nearly everything I do, I try to always be bringing somebody along with me to give them broader experience and also to give them exposure to different types of ministry. Yeah, so it it does vary a lot, which keeps it from being dull, but it also sometimes it's hard to focus on one thing and doing one thing well. Sometimes I feel like I'm doing a lot of things poorly mm -hmm. rather than one thing well. Sure. Masterful trades, babe. <laughs> that's the awesome. second phrase that goes with that that's good <laughs> you know we talked some about some of the challenges you guys have listed and identified several of those but i know at the same time that the lord is at work that he's doing some awesome things and so we just love for our listeners to be able to hear yeah one or two kind of encouraging things that you guys have seen the lord doing in recent days you know one of the things that's been most encouraging for us is to see that that the Lord really is convicting people by His Spirit. As I've thought about who are our best, our most faithful national partners, honestly, it's the people who were not saved because a foreigner shared the gospel with them or because a missionary shared the gospel with them, but it's because some other Mozambican shared the gospel with them and they were genuinely convicted, not because they had any sort of mixed motives, but it was just a pure work of the Spirit. We come in sometimes and we have... We have plans and we have programs and we have methods that we want to put into place. And it all looks great on paper. But honestly, the most faithful people that we work with are the ones who were saved apart from our efforts. And I get the privilege of coming alongside them and discipling them, which has been really great. And watching them as they fully recognize the authority of scripture and as they you see it just begin to saturate their life. It's just, like I said earlier, it's just such a stark contrast. It's really, really. Yeah, it's phenomenal. It's just a pure working of the Holy Spirit. They stand up to persecution. They're bold in the face of people who would oppose the authority of Scripture. Uh, and they're teachable if you can show it to them in Scripture. That's what I see God doing, is just convicting people by His Spirit that His Word is eternal truth. And they're surrounded by all these temporary truths, but that it's nothing compared to the weight and the, and the glory of that eternal truth. Uh, that's really been a source of encouragement in our time. And we see kind of this a new generation raising up now as well, and some new partners that have come along that we've had nothing to do with bringing them to the Lord. But now we're, we're partnering with them in like looking to send out more church planners across this land as well. So that's been a, a really encouraging thing. I don't know what we do. I want to transition to kind of some lightning round questions, some, kind of some quicker hitting kind of questions. 
First question, either one of you that wants to respond, you know, what do you think it takes to be a missionary in an extreme or difficult context? I think you need a love for God's word, a close walk with the Lord through prayer, and a recognition that you need the Lord every day and to give everything to him in prayer. I think a weekly accountability partner would be a very practical, wise thing to do. Nate and I each have a friend that we ring and pray with once a week. That just helps to sustain you as well as praying regularly with our national partners as well. And I would just add regular open prayer with your spouse as well. A lot of people end up leaving the field because of marriage issues. It's hard to hide things from a spouse when you're praying with them daily. All right. The next question you can take in either a serious direction or maybe a more silly direction, whatever you want to do. (laughs) The craziest and most shocking thing that you have seen or experienced. I wish there were a silly answer I could give you to this, but <laughs> well, we were followed by hyenas once. But yeah, yeah, it was a case by hyenas and <laughs> spat upon by spitting cobras, and yeah, we kill snakes pretty regularly. That maybe is the it maybe more in the I said silly or serious. That's more in the scary category, maybe. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but really, I mean, to me, the only thing that has really shocked me has mm. been when I've seen just blatant corruption on the surface, like where there's not even any shame for the corruption. We put our kids in a, in the local village school for mm. a year uh, mm. to try to help them learn language and have friends. And the teacher would come to school drunk and have a cane and just lay into the kids. I mean, that, that was shocking. I mean, you understand depravity, you understand drunkenness, but the, the fact that he'd be willing to go to, to work to teach children a sloppy drunk was pretty shocking. To the point where I brought it up to his administrator, like I couldn't just let that ride. What is one thing that you wish you knew before you arrived? I was going to say how hard it would be with kids. Both Nate and I were singles on the field and then came back with with kids. And I, it was a shock to me how much harder it is to be on the field with kids. <laughs> I was devoted in prayer for them before we came to the field. And then as soon as we got here, they got really, really sick. But through that, the Lord actually taught me like these light and momentary troubles are worth are worth it for that they're not worth comparing to the eternal glory that awaits us. And he is worth it. He is worthy. So even though I th- it was probably better that I didn't know how hard it would be with kids until I got here and the Lord sustained you and he gives you grace for the moment. So I would just say anything that that you don't know before you go to the field, it's okay because the Lord will sustain you and teach you as you go day by day. Yeah, maybe that's what we needed to know is that we it's okay to not know everything. <laughs> there was one thing that you said that Oh, uh, yeah, there's one thing as well that I wish I knew. I spent I spun my wheels a bit in my first couple of years here investing in guys that I thought would make great leaders. I just saw them as having a lot of leadership potential, but they just if they, you know, it was like if they would just make the right moral choices, they'd be great leaders. But I flipped on that and and I started investing in people based on their moral decisions. Uh, even if they stutter, even if they can't read, they'll make a better leader than what than what a really charismatic guy would make if he, he doesn't, doesn't have those moral convictions. That's such a great word. You know, it's like man looks at the outward appearance, Lord looks at the heart. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's cool that you're able to kind of see that kind of play out in your context. If people who are listening wanted to learn more about your area, your people, the religion, the context, anything like that, is there a book, a video, a movie, a web link, anything that you would point them to if they wanted just to learn more? 
There's not really much information on, <laughs> yeah. on where we live, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. Missionary biographies would be a good one because they still live that way <laughs> where, where we live. And then also missionary newsletters. You know, there are people yeah. out here doing this, and that would probably be the really the best source of information. So mm. uh, find somebody out there and just get on their newsletter. Last question. Let's say there's another Nate and Jenny that's been on the field for a month somewhere in a difficult spot, kind of similar to yours, or maybe five years from now or 10 years from now, there's another Nate and Jenny who does kind of the same thing. How would you encourage them? How would you encourage folks who are working in similar environments? What would you say to them? Someone told me, make it your goal, your first term to come back for a second term. And I thought I can do that. So that's really my first couple of years, I really had to pray for perseverance. Mm. And then my next couple of years, I really had to pray for contentment. But the Lord helped in that. And I would just encourage people to stay where you are until the Lord leads you away. Like Mm. keep seeking his guidance and his will day by day. I would just add as well, in the longer term, we want to measure our ministry sometimes by fruitfulness. But I think I've been really encouraged many times over the years by reading through Jeremiah and seeing not fruitfulness, but faithfulness. And I've seen a lot of missionaries who have not seen a lot of fruit across this land, not seen the the rapid fruit that is sometimes seen elsewhere around the world. But they're some of the most faithful people that I've known. They've always done what the Lord has called them to do. They love the people around them. They want them to mm-hmm. know the Lord. But for whatever reason, the Spirit's not being poured out. And I think we need to remember that our, our ministries are first faithful uh, and, and may or may not be fruitful. Amen. That's a good word. Nate and Jenny, thank you guys so much for the time and the conversation. It's humbling and it's encouraging to hear how the Lord's at work in you. So thank you for, for taking time and staying up a little bit late to have the conversation mm-hmm. with me today. That's been our thank pleasure. you so much. Yeah, thank you. To hear more conversations like this, please subscribe to this podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening to this episode. Thank you for joining us on Amazon to the Himalayas. This podcast is brought to you by the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary. Please visit our website, www.sbts.edu bgs, where you can subscribe to the show and learn more. Also, if you have found these conversations helpful, please leave us a comment or a review and encourage your friends to subscribe to the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast.